This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the first episode of Sending Signals. Thank you so much for being here. It's quite hard to define what this series actually is. Simply put, it's a show about music and creativity. But when you think about what feeds creativity and what inhibits it, it becomes a jumping off point into a big wide world of human experience. It became a series about fathers and sons, about mental illness, and drum machines. It became a series about memory, about hope, success and failure. I spoke to some brilliant musicians and writers and I guess the big underlying question I'm chasing down through the series is this. How do you create something wonderful? I can't promise a simple profound answer but I hope you get some ideas. I hope you laugh. I hope you're surprised. I hope you're moved. Each episode I will try to fit two or three guests in, so hopefully each time there will be something that really pulls you in. Even if you're not a fan of an artist's work, I hope you'll find our conversations interesting. I hope I ask what you would like to know, and hopefully some things you hadn't thought of. The only rule for guests is I had to be interested in them, and I try and give equal weight to multi-million seeing rock stars as I do to that new writer or that up-and-coming band. So let's dive in. Coming up this week... It's all singing, but no dancing. I speak to Counting Crows frontman Adam Duritz and the Zombies frontman Colin Blumstone. Let's go. Imagine a band you like are coming to town. You book yourself a ticket, ask a good friend to join you. You get to the venue, maybe grab a beer and stake out a spot to watch the show. The band comes on and something feels off. You later discover that you are actually watching a group of imposters, a fake version of the band passing themselves off as the real deal. It's almost inconceivable that anyone could get away with that in the age of the internet and instant information. In the 60s, however, yep, it actually happened. Possibly the most notorious example involves 60s legends for zombies. Hailing from St Albans in England, the Zombies formed in 1962 and made two great albums before dissolving in 1967, frustrated at their lack of success, before the second album had even been released. That second album, Odyssey and Oracle, is now rightly regarded as a work of genius, but it failed to set the world alight at the time. However, single Time of the Season, which you've probably heard whether you realise it or not, was somewhat of a sleeper hit in the US eventually climbing to number three on the Hot 100 chart in 1969. So here we have a hit single, but no band. See where this is going? Enter Delta Promotions, who had actually launched two bands of fake zombies into the world. Unbelievably, one of these bands featured two future members of ZZ Top, Frank and Dusty, if you're interested. The other had a member that actually shared a name with one of the real zombies, with only the slight drawback that he played a different instrument and was a different height. Again, you have to remember the era. If you're out in some American town hearing a single or two on the radio, 
you may have no idea what a particular English band even looked like. There was no MTV, no YouTube. Even when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, information on bands could be scanned. What you had on record sleeve or a label, or inaccurate word-of-mouth legends passed around. Over the years, thanks to some high-profile fans, the Zombies legend grew, and keyboardist Rod Argent and vocalist Colin Blunstone resurrected the Zombies, so to speak. Four of the five surviving members have also reunited for a couple of tours, performing the legendary Odyssey and Oracle in full. Recently, for its 50th anniversary in fact, culminating in an incredible show at the London Palladium. Things elevated even further for the band this year, as they were inducted into a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, alongside The Cure, Radiohead and Roxy Music. Many artists may take such an honour with a healthy dose of cynicism. Not so the zombies. They seem jubilant about it. I got to speak to vocalist Colin Blundstone a few weeks before the ceremony, and I think it's fair to say he was in a good mood. But it hasn't all been plain sailing, as a band deal with a recent death of long-term bassist Jim Rodford. Hello? Oh, hello, is that Colin? Yes. Oh, hello, it's Matt Royal here. Hi. 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 Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. So, um, obviously, I want to start by saying massive congratulations. I'm so happy for you guys that the zombies are about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. By the time this goes out, it will already have happened. So, um, it's it's such wonderful news for you guys, because um, I know you've you've wanted it for, for years um, so it's amazing that it's finally happened. It's incredible, isn't it? I, we've actually been nominated four times in the past five years, and you kind of get to the point where you think that we're never going to actually be inducted. So it was it was a wonderful surprise, and uh, yeah, I think all of us are just really, really excited. I mean, we had a wonderful vote in the in the fan vote. We had over three hundred thousand votes in the. Incredible. And the fan vote. And we're so grateful to everyone who supported us because those votes go in over a period of about a, of about a month. So um, people have to have to be quite sort of dedicated to keep the votes going in. And then at long last to get the votes from the members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it, it's great because you realise that you're getting peer group acceptance of what you've been doing. They've they've noticed what we're doing and... and uh, and they think we're on the right line, so they've they've given us their vote. So it's it's a very exciting time. I felt when I've been to see you guys over years that you've that you've really sought kind of validation um, from Rod's comments on stage. He often sort of gives us a bit of a CV of a band of, of what you've accomplished and um, other artists that have sampled you and the way the songs have been used. It, it seemed it's always felt to me like it's been particularly important to you guys uh, I don't know if it's because uh, I guess the band were a bit underappreciated on, on the first time round um, whether it's well, what I mean, means more now well I possibly true I, I think that any feelings like that are kind of um, hidden you know I mean we uh, validation is quite a good word I suppose because when we finished the original band finished in 1967 we did perceive ourselves as being unsuccessful and it was only later that we realized, because there was no internet then, so you didn't know what was going on around the world. And it was only later that we realized we always had a hit record somewhere in the world. Yeah. And perhaps if we'd known that, maybe we would have had the uh, encouragement and strength to, to carry on. Yeah. But I think we have 
felt that we would like to get some kind of validation for what we've been doing. And, and, and this, this is exactly what being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is about. Yeah, I was at the Palladium show a year or two ago, and um, things have turned out so. What that was such a triumph that night. I thought it was a, it was an incredible night. There was something special about the atmosphere in the room that night. Um, it well, was it magic. was a great night. I mean, I'll always remember that. And uh, it is funny because we have these special nights, and quite a few of them are are in the UK. But we do tend to play more in America than we ever do here. It, I know, it's really interesting that we always seem to have uh, done slightly better chart-wise and and playing live in America. I mean, with most British bands, it's the other way around. It's really, really hard to get your foot in the door in America in terms of playing live. But for us, that's always been our sort of first port of call is to, is to tour in the States. We usually do three extensive tours a year in America every year. So it was great to come back home to the UK and play the Palladium. I, I really enjoyed that. Night. It was amazing. It was a really special night. And of course, sadly, I think it was the last show with, with before Jim passed, wasn't it? It might have been the last show in the UK. Right, OK. Um, well, the last show he played was actually in America when we opened for Anne Wilson from Heart, from Heart oh, yeah. uh, in, in a festival in America. And um, that was Jim's last show with us. It was really, really sad. Uh, we'd been back about five or six days, and I remember talking to him on, on the Friday night, quite late, and he was absolutely fine. And first thing Saturday morning, his son, Steve, who plays drums in the Zombies, called me and said he'd had a terrible fall, and um, he'd passed away. It was a huge shock because... I'd been talking to him just a few hours earlier. Yeah, he loved. He obviously loved playing because he played with you guys, and he was in the. Um, he played in the Cast Off Kinks as well, didn't he? And he was so active. He clearly sort of loved playing he so loved much. Playing. Well, he was eighteen years in with the Kinks actually, but he also played with the Swinging Blue Jeans and the Animals, and lots of other. But of course, he was a founder member of Argent. But what always used to intrigue me about Jim was when we came off when we came home off tour. I would probably be exhausted for a week, having been touring in America, but Jim would probably go out that night and play with a local band. Yeah. Just love playing. Yeah. And you know that our first decision we had to make when, when he had that terrible fall was whether we were going to keep going as a band. Of course. And I, I think Steve Robb was one of the ones who said, look, Jim would always want us to keep playing. That's what he loved doing. And we had to make a really quick decision because we were due to go to the States in about a week or 10 days' time. And so we decided, yeah, I think we really should keep the band going. And then what do we do? You can't replace Jim with like with like. He's unique. But we found, um, we were introduced to a a Danish player called uh, Soren Koch, who's K-O-C-H is his uh, surname. And he's, he's phenomenal. He's a brilliant musician and harmony singer. And um, different to Jim. You know, it's, 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 we're not comparing him with Jim. It's different. But we were so fortunate. And he knew, he'd seen us many times. Actually, he came to the Palladium to see, uh, in the audience. And we only had one run through with him. And the next time we played, we opened in New York. 
I, I'm not quite sure how he did that. It was it was a bit of magic, I think. Yeah. But uh, we were very, very fortunate to find him. Is it true you still um, perform all the songs in the original keys? Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> and um, I, funny enough, I was talking about this this morning at home, that the only slight problem I have in that is that it's very easy to catch colds when you're when you're travelling, you know, often it, you're, you're at your most vulnerable when you're travelling. Of course, you're meeting lots of people. They may not even know they've got colds or, or they've just got over a cold, but they're still infectious. And th- that's what I dread happening when I'm on the road is getting a cold because what happens usually as a singer, you lose the top of your range first. Yeah. And so a lot of these songs are quite rangy. You know, they're quite uh, um, challenging for to sing in those keys and if you get a cold it becomes almost impossible so that's that's one of my big fears yeah but it's amazing because you go and see the band and your voice is just so intact and i think the um the opening song you just you're blown away really when you you hear the range you still have and how perfect your voice still is after all these years it's it's really incredible can i ask about one of my favorite performances of yours is the way i feel inside from the first album because yeah. it, it kind of starts a cappella doesn't it was it arranged yeah. like that originally, or did you write it um, to music and then have the sort of a cappella idea late, later on? Um, well, we certainly recorded it as you hear it. Yeah. And so there wasn't music there that was taken away. I sang it a cappella. I'm not sure, it's such a long time ago, it's difficult to remember, but I, I think the idea was pretty much to do it as you hear it. Mm. Uh, when we do it now... Rod usually plays a bit of keyboard in the background yeah. because if instruments are going to come in at the end, and when I recorded it, it seemed very natural to, to hold the, the, the pitch bang on. But if you just drift a little bit, uh, it can sound very strange if the instruments come in at the end. So, you know, you might have sung three or four verses and you've got to stay absolutely in tune. And... Um, Every once in a while, that that can drift if you're not careful. Yeah, I'd say Rod usually just does a little bit of gentle keyboard in the background just to make sure I, I the the notes stay where they should be. Um, this is a podcast about creativity, and so I wanted to ask how the zombies' approach to creativity has has changed. Um, I guess sort of from your your first life to your um, the kind of reunion. Uh, do you think your approach to, to making records, to performing, has changed in terms of the creative process? Uh, no, I don't think so very much. Uh, we've what, one thing that we've always done is to try and write and record the music that appeals to us, rather than following trends. So maybe in the short term this affected our commerciality. I don't know, but I think in the long run it's pay dividends because we always work on the theory that if music appeals to us, if it sort of touches us in a special way, there's a good chance it's going to touch other people in the same way. And that's kind of the basis of how we decide what we're doing and how we're going to do it. We just try to, if you like, to be true to ourselves rather than to follow trends. And we've stayed the same all the way through the years. Um, we write from the heart and we choose the best songs that have been written. And very often, uh, there won't be a lot of extra songs. You know, that there will probably be only 10 or 11 songs that we've got. 
and that becomes the album. Yeah. So I know that Rod is the kind of principal songwriter, but yeah. on your last album, Still Got That Hunger, which I thought was a real success, my, I think the highlight of the album for me is the song that you wrote, um, Now I Know I'll Never Get Over You. I think oh, well, thank you very that's much. A wonderful. Yeah. Do you write because I know you play guitar. I know you don't play on stage with the zombies, but do you do you no. write using a guitar or do you focus on the top line melody first? Um, how does your writing uh, process I write, work? It's all in all sorts of different ways, but I, I write using guitar, and it can be a, a chord sequence that suddenly becomes very interesting, or it could be a little bit of lyric. Um, very often, my songs are based on real-life experiences, either things that have happened to me or things that I've observed in other people. So that's where the lyrics will usually come from. It, it, there is usually a story with the lyrics. And um, if you put all that together, you know, an interesting chord sequence, um, a little story that you can expand into the, the lyric of the song, and hopefully a catchy title, and suddenly you've got a song. Yeah, is there sometimes a conflict of interest with, I know you've described yourself in the past as being quite a private person, but then your songs sort of tend to come from personal experience. Is there kind of sometimes a almost like a conflict of interest between between the two? Well, there can be, but um, usually, uh, or even though it's come from personal experience, I would hope it's a little bit obscure what, what's sort of going on. I mean, I, it's not exactly... A, a day-to-day diary of what's been happening in my life. It's, it's the, the, uh, the, the spark of the song has come from something that I've observed. But after that, uh, uh, the interpretation of what has happened is, is quite sort of free. It doesn't have to be literal. I mean, the, pr- perhaps it can be argued that I made a mistake one of the early songs I wrote. And I wrote a song called Caroline Goodbye. And it was about a Caroline that was quite well, well, and still is quite well known, was a successful model and actress. And she's a lovely girl. And Yeah, I've met her, actually. Have you really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and I didn't mean to put her name in the song, but I couldn't... <laughs> it sounds a bit pathetic, but I couldn't find another name that fitted as well. Yeah. And I tried, I really tried. And then I thought that, only my close friends would know it was a true story anyway. But um, a journalist in the Daily Express, I, he just got the idea where he wanted to write an article about that song. and it, it became quite well known, the story behind it. And that's the only time I've slipped up, really. And <laughs> it, it, uh, it was only really because there was a big article in the Daily Express that it, it got to be known what the story of the song was. Yeah, you crowdfunded the last album, which um, again, it's for perils of the internet. It kind of brings it brings lots of challenges, but when it's when you've got an existing fan base, I guess it's a really useful tool that you can harness kind of fan power to get art made. I'm kind of fascinated by that that concept. Well, absolutely, I think you know, in, in principle, it's a great idea. But for us, it wasn't just about raising money to record the album. It was about involving the fan base in the whole uh, journey of, of recording the album so that they knew exactly what was going on right from the beginning. I'm not sure if we'll be doing that on the next album, but it, it was a great experience, and I, I think it helps a lot of artists to create albums and at a time when there are fewer and fewer record companies and fewer and fewer 
artists being signed to record companies, it's it's a great sort of added um, way of getting things done. Yeah, you just use the magic words next album there. Yeah, uh, we're already talking about the next uh, Zombies album. We've been rehearsing the first song and very early days on the second song. I'm actually, um, when we record songs, I try to actually learn all the lyrics on all the songs. But it's not always easy because I've got so many songs in my head because I, apart from the zombies, I've got a solo band as well and, and we play a completely different set. So when I'm tr- trying to learn new songs, it, sometimes I think it takes me longer than it takes most people. But I've been, over the weekend, I've been um, trying to get the lyric of the first song for the next album. I've been trying to get that lyric into my head. And um, hopefully, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Because I think with Odyssey and Oracle and Still Got That Hunger, you worked hard to rehearse for songs well in advance of going into record so that you could record sort of quickly once you got to the studio. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Um, with Odyssey and Oracle, it, it, we had to do that because we had a very limited budget. We had £1,000 and we'd managed to get into Abbey Road, which even then was a very expensive studio. So... We rehearsed extensively so that when we went into the studio, we knew what songs we were going to do. We knew the arrangement. We knew the keys. We're just looking for the performance. Yeah. And we thought it would be a good idea to do it again on the last album. We, in slightly different circumstances, but we, we liked the idea of playing live in the studio. Very often, musicians go into the studio separately so that you may not meet the other musicians at all it's the way a lot of recordings done nowadays but we wanted to play live in the studio and that's what we did and still got that hunger to a large extent is a, a live album all the backing tracks were live with the lead vocal i sang with them uh the solos were live only the backing vocals were added yeah um and I think it does give it a special kind of energy. Yeah, it sounds raw and it sounds like you playing. And I was I was really impressed with the, the energy and the power of a record. It wasn't like a, a sanitised sort of late career record. It still had an energy yeah, I, to I'm it. I'm glad you've, you've, you've said that because we felt it at the time. And uh, when we do this next album, I certainly would be up for doing it in a live way if we could if we can arrange it that way I'd, I'd like to do it. i really enjoyed it it helped me as a vocalist to be singing while the band was playing i, I found it in a way you have to know the material obviously but um if you know it the material well it's easier to record like that i'm guessing when you did odyssey though although you had the songs really well rehearsed when you went in i'm guessing things changed a little bit because you suddenly had access to um, like the two, four tracks that the Beatles had joined together. And I think they left behind the Mellotron, which I presume you wasn't expecting when you went in. Well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, um, the Mellotron was a great find. Um, you know, we were all huge Beatles fans, and they'd only just left having completed Sergeant Pepper. Sadly, we, we didn't meet them, but they, they'd left a few days before. And uh, for instance, there were a lot of percussion instruments lying around on the floor that had been left by the Beatles. Um, and we used some of those, uh, but also we used John Lennon's Mellotron. And it did change the sound of the album considerably. You know, I mean, oh, there's Mellotron sure. on just about every track. It sounds great um, too, doesn't it? So, yeah, you, you, you prepare as much as you can, but then when you go in the studio, you're always looking for 
you know, little bits of magic if you, if you can make it happen. And finding a Mellotron in there was certainly a little bit of magic. But I mean, I'm talking more about little, little added harmonies and uh, perhaps something added on a on a solo, and maybe we might even change the the tempo of a song. You have to be in the moment. You can you can have rehearsed as extensively as you want to, but you've still got to be in the moment and um, and and just make everything work in your favour as as it happens. Yeah. Well, Kyle, I'm conscious that our time's up. I just want to say I'm so happy for you guys and have an amazing time at the ceremony. Um, I hope your tour goes well, and I really hope I get to see you guys on the road again soon. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing you. If you can get along to a gig, it'll be great. And, uh, yeah, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is going to be fun, and, and we're so excited about the whole thing. So thanks for your congratulations. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks so much, Kyle, and take care, mate. Okay, all the best. Bye. 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 Visit thezombies.net for more information on the zombies, including tour dates. The band play a US tour later in the year, performing Odyssey and Oracle in fall once again. It's a joint tour of Brian Wilson, who will be playing songs from Surf's Up, which sounds like an incredible night out to me. While you're here, if you haven't already clicked subscribe, please do so. And if you could leave us a review on iTunes, it really does make a difference to a new show like this. Thank you. Back to the episode. You've probably wondered at some point in your life, however fleetingly, whether the world around you is actually real. But imagine an ongoing feeling like this, where it feels like you're living in a movie, feeling like you barely exist where you struggle to form and maintain relationships, where life passes by like a detached haze, where your life experiences somehow don't add up. This is what life can be like for Counting Crows frontman Adam Duritz. He has battled a disassociative disorder for many years. I really wanted to talk to him about it, and I was surprised about the implications it has with regard to music and creativity. He was incredibly gracious and candid in their conversation about his struggles and also about the future, or possibly non-future, of the band. I will just mention that, of course, there are different types of disassociative conditions with different symptoms and every sufferer will have a unique experience. So this is just one perspective, but I found it incredibly interesting. Here's my chat with Adam. Matt, how's it going? Hey, Ed, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate having me. Um, where are you right My now? My pleasure. I'm home in New York. Excellent. Um, I guess this is a busy time for you. The festival is next week, Underwater Sunshine. Yeah, very excited. So for those that don't know, can you tell us about the festival and, and what your game plan was, what you wanted to achieve with it? Um, well, it's just, you know, I was working for about six or seven years with my friend Ryan Spalding on the Outlaw Road Show, which is another festival we did for a number of years uh, in a bunch of different cities. And, uh, you know, we sort of all splintered our own ways a couple of years ago, and uh, a lot of us who had been working on it decided to start a festival of our own, and, and we started Underwater Sunshine. And the first one was in October, uh, and we decided to try and do them twice a year. And this is the second one coming up. 
Uh, and I don't know. I just think I have always loved being involved with independent music and helping other musicians. I mean, I have pretty lucky experience myself, but not everyone gets that. And I think there's a lot of great music out there. And uh, I've always wanted to try and be involved in sort of helping it take place one way or another. You know, I had independent record companies, several when I was younger. Uh, but I, that's kind of hard. I, you know, it, it's uh, it was very rewarding making all the records and helping the bands make records. But honestly, running a record company is such a near impossible experience. Uh, and it just kind of, no matter how great a job we did, and I have a lot of great memories of it, I always felt like we kind of failed them because, you know, we didn't sell enough records generally. Yeah. Uh, and the nice thing about the festival is that there's no failure at all. Huh. You know, it's just all kind of good. Yeah. Everything we do helps out and it's a blast and I, I love it. You know, and, and I don't have to run a record company and lose millions of dollars. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, played London a few months ago and your closing comment was incredibly cryptic. You were like, I don't know if we'll see you again, so goodbye. Like, what on earth just happened? Oh, did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I've been thinking a lot in recent years about what I want to do now. You know, and what, uh, I'm not sure whether, uh, I, I know people love a lot of stuff we've done. You know, in particular, you know, a few albums that we did a long time ago, but I'm not that interested in reliving 25 years ago. And I wasn't sure how much people wanted to hear new music anymore. Mm. And I, so I've just been kind of like wondering whether I wanted to just try and do something else. I just haven't been sure, you know, uh, it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of questions in my mind about that. I love playing music. I don't think I want to play it with anything except for my band. I love County Crows. Uh, but I don't know whether, you know, sometimes you just get past your sell-by date with people. Uh, I don't know that whether that's happened or not, but, you know, I've wondered about it in recent years, you know. Because going on the road and reliving 25 years ago isn't that interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, playing new stuff. You know, and I've felt in recent years the apathy with newer music from audiences. Even as we've been selling tons of tickets, you know, I've, I've wondered whether they cared about new music. The interesting thing was this summer in trying to do all that stuff with talking and telling stories about the songs, I found that it, it really opened people up to a lot of newer music in ways that I hadn't heard them be interested before. Hmm. You know, talking about God of Ocean Tide, it in the first time I've ever heard people really pay attention and care about that song. And that was pretty powerful for me. That kind of gave me a lot more optimism, uh, talking about the songs and finding people react to them that way. You know, it made me want to explore that more. Yeah. But, I, you know, I have been kind of, you know, not in a bad way, but I just sort of, you know, you can't, nothing lasts forever. And especially in our business, just to the last 25 years, is kind of miraculous. But, you know, and we could probably go on for 50 more, but I, we'd be playing a few songs and have people be bored by everything else. Maybe, maybe not. And I, I've also, I, I'm, I'm on the fence about that, but it's something I was thinking about a lot last year and as we were touring. It was a it was a concern for me and something I was really sort of pondering. So it doesn't surprise me that I said that. Huh. Uh, it surprised me. But uh, I don't really remember it. But <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I imagine it's a I don't think I, I usually used to say, you know, we'll be back. 
but I, I think I stopped saying that this year because I wasn't sure if we, if we would. Because I thought you'd said you weren't planning to do a lot of touring this year because you wanted to make a new record. Well, yeah, that is that is true too. I really do. Um, and I, I I knew I didn't want to tour anymore for a bit. I I wanted to work on new music, but I but I haven't been sure how that was going to turn out or whether we would go back to touring. Um, I don't know. Have you started uh, you know, writing? It's a it's an ongoing question. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I started writing. I've been working on some other stuff. You know, I bought a winery. Some friends and I bought a winery this year, so I've been sort of working on that too. Um, but I, I think I'll I really want to bear down and work on the music when the festival's over. Yeah, you're self-deprecating about your piano playing. It fascinates me that after all these decades, you haven't improved. <laughs> Yeah, I will. I, you know, part of the problem with dissociative disorder is that, you know, for most people, life is like laying cards on a table. You know, they each day is another card, and they pile up after a while, and that's what experience is. You yeah. know, but part of the problem with being dissociative is is that things don't always add up. Like you put a bunch of cards on a table, and after a long time of laying down cards, still like you just put down one card every time, and there's only one card there. You don't always build experiences the same way other people do. You don't always remember things the same way. Like for me, writing is very difficult because I don't feel like I've ever really written a song before. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that I write songs because I don't have any memory of doing it really. Really? Uh, I, I have to relearn how to play piano each time. I have to relearn how to write songs each time. It's kind of like, I mean, I have a memory and that I know I've done it but not an experiential memory where it's like, oh, I just go sit down and write or play. And that's one of the problems with my playing is I don't think I've gotten any better. I, not really. You know, I, I just, I have to reteach myself to play piano every time. Um, it's hard that way because of the dissociative disorder. I don't always, well, I don't gain experience the same way other people do. I, I have to reteach everything constantly. Yeah. Um, it, it can be, it's endlessly like living in this second. And uh, other stuff can seem very not particularly real, uh, which is difficult, you know, and uh, which is why I think my piano playing isn't very good. And it really isn't. I can't play by ear. I can't just play things I think of. I have to pick everything out that I do, like note by note. Yeah. Uh, in order to write all those songs, it's all like a lot of work because of that, you know. And I, and there's a, you know, maybe I'm better than some people, but I have a pretty high bar. I know what a good piano player sounds like. I play with one. You yeah, know, I mean, I, I know many friends who are really good musicians who are far, far, I mean, I have some skills as a musician, serious skills, where arrangement is concerned, where composition is concerned, uh, you know, where, I mean, just, and, and the ability to run a band, you know, but I think as a plain instrumentalist, I'm very, very rudimentary, which is frustrating. Yeah. But... I don't know, it kind of tells you about the amount of work that goes into doing what we have accomplished. I'm really proud of that. Oh, you, know, you should like be. The things I have done were hard for me, and, and they were really satisfying that way. I'm very, very proud of it. And like I said, I have serious skills as an arranger and, and a, like a, a writer. You know, there's things I do well that other guys in the band, I, I have, I'm really good at that stuff. Producing, conceptual stuff, I have a lot of, I appreciate my abilities. I'm not really a self-deprecating person, but I'm more of a realist about stuff. You know, I also don't sit around and blow my horn about the things I'm not good at. Yeah. You know? I would not say I'm a humble person in the least bit, but I, I am kind of realistic. 
Um, how is your health these days? Has it Im- has it improved from say ten years ago, or twenty years ago? Do you have you noticed a tangible difference? Mental health. Yeah. You mean? Uh, it's uh, it's always going to be an ongoing thing. I, I think one of the things that's hard to come to grips with when you have a, a difficulty like this is that. Uh, it, it isn't necessarily something you're going to get cured of. Like you're never necessarily, you're not necessarily ever going to be what we would call better. Yeah. Fine. You know, it's not ever going to go away, but you learn to come up with things. You know, hopefully you get better as a whole, as far as your life goes. And I think that I am, I am substantially better. Um, I'm a lot happier these days. Uh, I've been in a great relationship for a year and a half now, pretty much. Um, made a decision after new year's to just really get healthy and lose some of the weight I've been putting on. So you know, I'm down about 30 something pounds since then. Oh. Um, just been eating really healthy and dieting and, you know, to, to be better and, you know, nothing fits me anymore. It's kind of great. Uh, I I'm 30 pounds less than I was at Christmas time. Um, so, you know, that's kind of great. Uh, yeah. It made it hard being out at board meetings for the uh, the winery last week because I haven't been drinking at all. <laughs> and uh, winery work is all wine tasting, largely wine tasting. And that was difficult considering that I hadn't been touching any alcohol or really eating many calories for three or four months. But uh, I survived it. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was uh, I'm really proud of that, too. I think we're making amazing stuff. And uh you know, now that the festival's coming up in a week, when that's over, uh, I think I'm really going to try and get to the writing. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get cured, but you can get a lot better. And I've been trying to do that. Yeah. Um, I relate, I, I have a battle with obsessive compulsive disorder. And so I, I relate it to that not, not being cured. You that's know, you, you can make progress. Um, but sometimes you you find yourself going backwards, and it's um, it's tough. Yeah, it's a constant act of will, and you kind of have to forgive yourself for not being perfect because that's hard to be. Yeah, have you ever been shocked by how far uh, a live version of a song has strayed from the original recording? Because you never play the same show twice; um, it's different every time. The songs. Are constantly changing. You said about not living in the past, but I don't think you do because the songs evolve so much. How do you feel about that process nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I've been shocked by it, but uh, I, I, I appreciate it. I, I like it. I mean, I, I well, you know what is surprising sometimes is to remember the original version because I think for most people they sing it so much the same way that they are so used to. Like, but I have some great vocal parts that I've forgotten to sing. You know, when we, when we were touring with Rob Thomas a few years ago, and, you know, Rob and I have been friends for a long time, and he wanted to come sing on some songs, so he did. And we were, I, you know, we were talking about Rain King, and he's like, oh, I love the bridge, too. Can I, can I sing part of the bridge? And I was just like, take the whole bridge. That'd be great. It would sound really cool. Um, and he started singing it, and he did this one line, and I turned to Emmy, and I said, oh, wow. That's how that goes. You know, I've forgotten completely that there was this great melody line. I can't remember what line it was, but that I hadn't been singing for years and years and years. Like, I hadn't sung it all that way in a long, long, long time. And I never listened to that record, so I had completely forgotten it. 
And uh, and then Rob sang it, and I was like, oh, wow, that's a great melody. That's how that song goes. You know, and it was a, it was a funny reminder of like, wow, that has really strayed a long way. I don't think of myself as forgetting the original part. I, I feel like I just like do a variation on it every night. But then I realized at that moment, oh, I'm way, way far away from what this original song is. And that is, that is a very different thing. And that's a great melody. Yeah. It just hit me at that moment. Oh, that's pretty cool. Thank you so much. I hope the festival um, goes really well. And I hope you manage to make a record this year. And I really hope your, your health continues to be something manageable and um, just thank you so much for coming on, mate. Oh, anytime. And, uh, yeah, if you want to do it again sometime, I'd be happy to. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think things will probably keep getting better. I, I don't see why not. I feel like I got a pretty good grip on that stuff. And, you know, I wrote a really cool piece of original music the other day, and I, I feel pretty good about that stuff, too, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much, Adam. Take care of yourself, man. No problem. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, appreciation. Thank you. Take care. What a fantastic guest. I hadn't thought of a possible connection between his piano playing and his disassociative condition. I'd risked this slightly flippant comment, but he handled it so graciously without trying to embarrass me. I was so impressed with his honesty. And we didn't have long together, so for him to go that deep was amazing. I also hope he didn't think I was trying to minimise his condition by mentioning my ongoing problem. It was a clumsy attempt at trying to relate, I guess. I'm probably overthinking it. I hope he meant it when he said he'd be willing to come on the show again. I think there's a lot more we could have said. Anyway, thanks, Ad. Travel safely, man. That's our show for this week. Just a couple more things regarding the Adam Duitz interview. If you like a band enough to spend money on a ticket to go and see them, please don't view the new songs as a chance to go to the bar. Every song you've ever loved was a new song once. Also, I realised very late in the editing process that I'd been saying disassociative and not dissociative. So please forgive me. What did you learn about creativity from this week's episode? Find me on Twitter at Signals Podcast. Special thanks this week to Matt Broughton, John Armstrong, JP Durant, Sasha Taylor-Cox, and of course, the guests. Guests' opinions of their own. See you next week. <laughs>